Well, this morning we're looking at a passage that comes on the heels of one of the most spectacular and literal high points in all the Bible. Jesus and some of the disciples are coming down from what's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Transfiguration, of course, was when Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus to a mountaintop where they witnessed Jesus' appearance change. Verse 3 of this chapter says that his clothes became radiant. They became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Then Mark tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared, who were two of the Old Testament prophets who had long been dead, and they were there talking with Jesus. Well, the disciples are terrified as they're witnessing this, and then as all this is happening, suddenly a cloud surrounds them, and the voice of God comes from the cloud, and it says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, that was quite an experience for Peter, James, and John to behold. You see, after witnessing something like this, everything else in life would simply pale in comparison. There is no way that anything would ever come close to this experience, especially not the trivial and the mundane things that they experience in life. But you see, what's interesting is that right after this mountaintop experience in which it felt like things could not have gotten any better for these disciples, here we find that they come down from the mountain and find a situation that seems like it couldn't possibly get any worse. It's utter chaos. Hell has broken loose literally here. There's a demon here. And the other disciples who didn't go up on the mountain with Jesus, well, they're here, but they're arguing with the religious leaders. And there's confusion among all the crowds that are gathering around. And in the middle of all this, there's this father who is absolutely beside himself because it's his son who's suffering so. So everything's a mess here. And in the very same chapter, we go from what seems like the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this, but to me, this sounds a whole lot like life as we know it. And in particular, I'd say this especially sounds a whole lot like the Christian life. You know, sometimes we have these mountaintop experiences where we see things clearly and we feel very close to God, but most of the time it seems like those experiences are few and far between. It feels like there are a whole lot more of the low points than there are the high ones. Now, why is that? Well, I think that one of the things that we're supposed to see in this passage, and especially as we consider our own lives and going through the valleys of life that we experience, I think this is one of the issues that this passage is here to help us understand. This passage is here to teach us something about growing spiritually during the low points, the times of tribulation in our lives. But in order for us to be able to grow, I think that there are three things that we see here in this text that we need in order to grow in times of trouble. But now what are they? Well, I've listed them for you in your bulletin this morning. I think this passage shows us three things, the first of which is that we need to admit our helplessness. The second is that we need to entrust our problems to Jesus. And that's not always easy. And we're going to talk about that a little later. 
But then third, we need to rely on Jesus' power through prayer. So let's begin this morning by looking first at the need to admit our helplessness. Verse 14 says, When Jesus, Peter, James, and John came to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd about them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And what were they arguing about? Well, as this crowd gathers in around them, a man steps forward from it, and he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes very rigid. He says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. So the conflict we see here in this passage, it extends from this demon that's possessing this boy. And the disciples, they're frustrated because they're trying to cast out this unclean spirit, but it's not working. And of course, they can't figure out why because they've done this successfully before in the past. But then the religious leaders are standing close by to these disciples and they're probably telling them that they're doing everything wrong. You know, that's why this isn't working. You guys are just not doing it right. Now, before we go any further, what we need to realize here is that when it comes to spiritual problems that we face in life, they are usually multifaceted. Rarely are we ever able to pinpoint just one thing that's wrong whenever we're dealing with spiritual tribulations. And you see, that's certainly the case for the disciples here, but it's also true for us. And while there are indeed a number of problems that the disciples are facing in this passage, the underlying issue that they're experiencing and that we experience in our lives is the inability to see our true helplessness, and it's revealed in two ways. The first of which is in the disciples' inability to comprehend suffering. The disciples can't understand suffering. They're trying to, but they just can't get it. You see, they're surprised, and they're probably embarrassed when they're unable to exercise this demon. And so they wait till they're in private with Jesus to ask him, why couldn't we cast this demon out? You know, why didn't this work for us, Jesus? You see, in following Jesus Christ, these disciples have been learning a very difficult lesson. And that is that life is a long journey that is filled with difficulty. Jesus says to the disciples elsewhere, in this life, you will have tribulation. He says, in this world, you will have suffering. You will continually struggle with challenges that are way beyond you, and that is life. And he says, that is an inevitable part of life. But you see that these disciples and we, we push back on that completely. For example, you might recall that it wasn't long before this incident here that Jesus had first told the disciples that he was the Messiah He was the Savior of Israel. But you see, in the very next sentence, immediately afterwards, Jesus tells them that he is the Messiah who is going to have to come and to suffer and to die. And do you remember what happened? Peter went crazy when Jesus said that. He couldn't take it. He rebuked Jesus for saying it, as a matter of fact. Why did he do that? It's because he cannot comprehend that the Messiah himself is going to have to suffer and to die. But more pointedly, Peter cannot comprehend that in order for him to follow Jesus, he will have to suffer and he will have to die too. But you see, it's not just the disciples who have this problem. 
Because there's something too in our nature that revolts at this idea of suffering. And specifically that in order for us to follow Jesus Christ in this life, we're going to have to suffer too. You see, that's why whenever we encounter suffering for ourselves, we tend to fall apart. We tend to say things like, God, he shouldn't be letting things like this happen in my my life. You know, he shouldn't be letting that happen in those people's life over there. Why does he let things like this happen? How can he let things like this happen? But Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulations no matter who you are. And you see, really, we're helpless to understand this because we think that if we're clever or if we're good, if we're moral, somehow we can avoid trouble. We think that somehow we can get over this. We can be beyond this. You see, secular people in this world today, they think that if you're having lots of problems in life, then it's probably because you're not smart. You know, you're just making bad decisions. But then the religious people that are in this world, they tend to think, well, that if you're having lots of problems in life, well, then obviously it's because you're not good. You know, things would definitely be going better if you were just living the right way. So just stop sinning. Just start living the right way. That's what they think. But you see, Jesus Christ says it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. He says it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. No matter who you are, you will suffer in this life. But what I want to argue this morning is that apart from a Christian worldview, suffering, the sufferings we face in life, they really have no meaning because Christianity is the only belief system in the world that gives us a God who is not distant or who is not indifferent to suffering, but who has come into the world himself and endured its suffering in order to save it. You see, of all the religions in the world, only Christianity tells us that in the end, suffering does serve an ultimate purpose. Because Jesus, what he's trying to teach us here and what he's shown us through his life is that true greatness in this world only comes through suffering. And you see, if we're going to ever experience greatness in this life, the true spiritual high points in life, Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says we're going to have to follow Jesus on the path of suffering. But what I want you to know this morning is that is going to take a whole lot more than any of us have in ourselves and in our own strength to follow Jesus. What it's going to take for all of us is faith. And that is the second thing, by the way, that we need to admit our helplessness in. You see, our problem is not just with our understanding of suffering, but we also have a big problem with faith because none of us have perfect faith. None of us believe like we're supposed to and act like we're supposed to out of that faith. And the disciples didn't either. You see, their inability to cast this demon out stemmed from the fact that they were relying on their own giftedness and their past success. Now, I'm sure that there's nobody here this morning. None of us certainly can probably uh, comprehend uh, this. And none of us probably, uh, it doesn't sound like anything that we would do, right? But you see, what Jesus says in verse 19 is, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
He says, how long am I to bear with you? And when he says that, he's not just talking to the religious leaders and the disciples who were present at that time. No, he's talking to you and me. He's talking to us today. You see, usually the problem we have is that we trust, we put our faith in all the wrong things in life. Normally it's in ourselves and in our own accomplishments, our own strengths. But you see, sometimes we put our trust in other people or we put it in other things. And then sometimes, believe it or not, we even put our faith in the idea of faith, in this concept of faith, of, that, that somehow faith itself is something that if, if we just believe sincerely enough, well, then we're going to get what we want. If we just believe enough, then, then things will go our way. But that is not what genuine faith, the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about, actually looks like. So what does it look like then? Well, surprisingly, it looks like admitting your weaknesses. It looks like admitting your helplessness in yourself and your utter reliance upon God and his grace. And in this passage, we have one of the most vivid pictures in all the Bible. But it doesn't come from the religious leaders or the disciples. You see, there's only one person who comes to Jesus Christ confessing his utter helplessness. And it's this boy's father. He says to Jesus, this demon has been afflicting my son since childhood. Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us, he says. And Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And how does this boy's father respond? Well, he responds with what's becoming my lifetime verse. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Which means I'm trying to believe Jesus, but I'm struggling with doubts. I can't do this on my own. And then incredibly, Jesus actually heals his son. Now the reason this is so incredible is because Jesus does not say to this man, don't you realize who I am? Don't you know that I am the God of all creation who's come in the flesh? How dare you come before me with doubts? You know, go, go home. Go purify your heart. And when you've gotten rid of all your doubts, and then when you have all faith, then come back to me and ask me for what you need. And I might give you a healing. Jesus doesn't say that to this man at all. No, he hears what this man asks him, and Jesus heals his son. And what he's showing us here is that saving faith is not coming before God and saying, God, I have all faith. I am faithful. Now bless me. You see, that's not faith in Jesus at all. All that is is faith in you. It's you trying to save yourself from your own problems. You see, it's being your own Lord. It's being your own Savior. It's not faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus looks like what this Father is saying here. It's confessing our doubts and our utter inability to meet our moral and spiritual challenges. But Jesus shows us here that if we do that, if we come to him and we confess our total helplessness and we ask for him to save us and to help us believe the gospel, then that is saving faith. That is faith in him and in his ability and power to deliver us instead of ourselves. 
So this shows us that in order to grow in times of trouble, we need to first admit our helplessness to God and to ourselves. But secondly, it shows us that we need to entrust our problems to Jesus. And that's not always easy. That's not always easy. Why not? You say, well, Jody, you made it sound really easy in that first point. You just have to have faith, right? Well, that is right. But you see, having faith, relying completely upon Jesus, that is almost never easy for us. Because one, it means that we have to give control over our problems and our lives to Jesus. And therefore, two, it means that things are not always going to work out the way we plan. Will you look here at what happens when this father comes to Jesus and he brings, when he entrusts his problem to Jesus? Verse 25 says, When Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit after crying out and convulsing the child terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of the crowd said, He is dead. You see, when this father brings his troubled son to Jesus, apparently it looks like things have gotten much worse instead of better. You see, before, this boy was just a deaf mute. Now he's dead. When Jesus begins dealing with this problem, at first it looks like everything is getting worse instead of better. You see, here it takes only moments before it becomes clear what Jesus is really doing here. But in your life, it may not take just moments. It may take a lot longer. And you see, when that happens, that is always going to be a test of our faith. Giving control over our lives and all our problems, which is what we're doing when you become a Christian, that means that you are relinquishing your rights as to how you think your life should go to Jesus himself. That's what it means to make him Lord in your life. You are giving up to him the right to do whatever he wants with your life and to work through your problems however he deems necessary. But you see, the problem we have with that is that even after becoming Christians, we still think that we know what's best for our lives. So then when things don't work out our way, that can make us hesitant to bring our problems to Jesus because he might not give us what we want. You know, he might just decide that, that something else, something we had never had planned is what we need. And when faced with that possibility... That makes us maybe want to run from Jesus. That makes us maybe want to disregard what he says in his word that we need to do this or we need not to do that. Or perhaps worst of all, it just may mean that we have to be patient and to wait upon Jesus. You see, waiting is extremely difficult for us because we live in a consumer society when we can pretty much have anything we want at any time we want. So we're not into this whole waiting thing. But waiting is especially difficult for us when our problems have to do with the things that we care most about in our lives. Things like our kids. You know, I got to tell you this morning that since Julie and I have become parents over the last two years, we've learned that there is a whole lot more to trusting God and to waiting than we ever thought possible, especially when it comes to things that have to deal with our daughter. Now, I know that we've all got problems in life. You know, we all have problems, and I'm not trying to belittle your problems in any respect. But I want you to know, and those of you who are already parents know 
that when there is a problem with one of your kids, that brings with it a tribulation that is unlike any other in life. And I say that this morning because in two years, we've made more visits to the children's urgent care than I care to admit. Now, some of those trips were justified, but some of them may not have been. We're first-time parents. Give us a break. As a matter of fact, we've seen some of you at the urgent care before, too. And I don't know why you were there. But that, other, that utter sense of helplessness and despair that you face when you know that there's something wrong with your, chi- your child and that there's very little you can do to actually help them, especially if their life is in danger, that feeling is terrible. And some of you know that feeling all too well because you've suffered and you've seen your children suffer. And you see, God knows how terrible this is. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes, to be in that situation. But why then does he allow those things to come into our lives? Why does Jesus allow difficult circumstances with our kids and with the other things we face to happen to us? Well, believe it or not, the reason he does this is because he loves us. He loves us that much. You see, he does it because he wants us to bring the problems that we face in this life to him. Because in doing so, we're really confessing our greatest need. And what is our greatest need? Well, it's to know that he is the Lord and to have a personal relationship with him. That's our greatest need. You see, because Adam, our first father, rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, because he sinned, our fellowship with God has been broken. It's been broken, and we've all inherited Adam, our first father's rebellious nature. You see, the problem we have is that we all want to control our own lives. We want to be our own lords, our own masters. We want to decide what's right and wrong and good and bad for ourselves without giving any real care as to what God says in his word. And our real dilemma, our real dilemma in this life is that we are not smart enough or good enough. None of us are qualified to govern our own lives, much less the lives of the people around us. You see, there are way too many factors involved over which we have very little control. But the Bible tells us that the Lord, God himself, is indeed sovereign over all things. And not only has he created all things, but he has an intricate care for everything in existence. And you see, if that's true, then what that means is that we can come to him and we can trust him with our problems, no matter how big or how small they are, or even how things may look at the time. And even when we know or find out that things are not going to go the way we want them to. How is that possible? How can we possibly do that when we're so weak and so helpless? Well, I think C.S. Lewis, the well-known Christian author, gives us a great illustration in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he says. He says, I want you to imagine yourself as a living house. What God wants is to come in and to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you weren't surprised. But presently, God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
The explanation, Lewis says, is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. He intends to come and to live in it himself. C.S. Lewis is saying here that regardless of how things might look in your life at the present time, you can trust that God is a better architect of your life than you are. Because the end goal is that he wants to dwell with you. But just as you wouldn't want to dwell in an establishment with a faulty foundation, God doesn't want that either. He is remodeling you with his presence. And beloved, we desperately need his presence. We need to know him. We need to draw near to him. And that is the only way that we're ever going to be able to see the changes that we need in our lives. But also to have those mountaintop experiences that help get us through the difficulties that we face in life. So now how in the world can we have that? How can we access the presence of God and his peace in the middle of great difficulty? Well, the third thing this passage shows us is that we need to rely on Jesus' power through prayer. We need to rely on his power through prayer. You'll notice in verses 28 and 29, there we finally find out why the disciples didn't have the power to exercise this demon. They tried to do it without praying. They tried to do it without praying. Do you realize how arrogant that is? You see, the disciples had forgotten that it was Jesus who had given them the power to do these things. It didn't come from themselves. You see, the disciples are clueless about the fact that they are inadequate to handle the evil and the suffering and the difficulties that they face in this world. But you see, when you're on this side of things, like we are, when you're on this side of the story, this side of the Bible, it's real easy for us to throw rocks at the disciples and say, I can't believe they did this, you know? How stupid. How could they have done something like this? How could they have ever think that they could handle things, something like this on their own? Well, if you want to know whether or not you believe that you're capable of handling the evil and the problems and the suffering you face in this life in your own strength, then all you have to do is look at your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. Are you seeking today to face the problems of the world in Jesus' power? Or are you trying to stand against them in your own power? You know, one of my seminary professors once told a story about a time when he was traveling. And he said he was in his hotel room and he was in a hurry to go somewhere. He was probably teaching somewhere. And so he was in a hurry to get ready. And so he lays all this stuff out on the countertop so they can just grab it and go when he needs to. But then he got in the shower and he took his shower. And when he got out, he needed to dry his hair. And so he picks up this brand new hair dryer that he bought and it doesn't work. And so being the crotchety old man that he is, he starts looking at this thing and shaking it. You know, what's the matter with this thing, this stupid piece of junk? He's hitting it and stuff like that. And then he said it dawned on him what the problem really was. He forgot to plug it in. He forgot to plug it in. It wasn't connected to the power source, so of course it didn't work. But you see, the point he was trying to make through that illustration is to say that if we're not connected to Jesus and to his Holy Spirit through prayer, then we're not going to have any power to face the tribulations 
that come into our midst in our lives. But through prayer, through prayer, we are able to acknowledge our helplessness as we entrust our problems to Jesus, and we're able to rely on his power to deliver us rather than to deliver us ourselves in our own strength. But as we think about all this, you know, as I'm sitting here telling you, just pray to the Lord and entrust your problems to him, you might be sitting there saying, okay, Jody, but how can I know that God's going to hear my prayer? You know, I pray all the time, especially when I'm in trouble, but I can't tell you how many times it feels like my prayers don't go past the ceiling. How can we know that God will really hear our prayers when we cry out to him? Well, we can know it because in the greatest hour of tribulation that has ever faced mankind, God the Father did not answer the prayer of his own son for our sake. What in the world does that mean? Well, you see, in every prayer that Jesus Christ prays in the Bible, all except one, he always calls God his Father. But you see, on the cross, when Jesus prays to God, he doesn't call God Father there. What does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? Why did Jesus do that? Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, the Bible tells us that at Calvary, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who had no sin, was crucified as a sinner. There he wasn't treated as God's child. Why? It was so that you and I could be. You see, on the cross, God the Father put the sins of his children upon Jesus and he punished him in our place so that he could save us from the greatest trouble that we'll ever face and that we're totally helpless against. And that is the punishment that is due our rebellion, that is due our sin. It is the eternal wrath of God. But because the Father turned his ear away from Jesus' cry in that hour of trouble, Now he can turn his ear to us no matter what trouble we face in this life. The cross is the great exchange. It is his life for our life. It is his righteousness for our sins. It is his rejection for our acceptance. And as God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, he's shown us that we can have a new life that is lived with him and for him in this world now. And that we can have eternal life with the Lord himself forever in the life to come. You see, though we may suffer in this life and though we will die, sin and death cannot have the final word over those who belong to Jesus by faith. And it's through faith in him and by the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we can have access to the father of all creation who is all powerful at any time. Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, he once said this regarding prayer. He said, in all states of dilemma or difficulty, prayer is an available source. The ship of prayer may sail through all temptations, doubts, and fears straight up to the throne of God. And though she may be outward bound with only griefs and groans and sighs, she shall return freighted with a wealth of blessings. Now that is a great illustration about prayer. But does that mean that the answers to our prayers are going to come immediately and when we want them to? 
No. No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that though our answers to prayer may not come today, and though they may not come tomorrow, and though when they arrive they may not look at all like what we thought they would, we can know with great certainty that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and that He will respond in His own perfect time and own perfect way because of His great love for us. God would go to infinite cost and infinite depths to meet the needs of His children. And Jesus Christ is proof that He has. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus and in His work, and by that been adopted into God's family and become one of his children, would you do that today? Would you embrace Jesus and his works on your behalf by faith? And would you put your trust, will you entrust him with your problems in life today? You know, one of the verses that I'm often encouraged by whenever I face troubles is in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 9. In that passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer. And he says to them this. He says, which of you, if he has a son that asks for bread, would give him a stone? He says, or if your son were to ask for a fish, which of you would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Friends, look to the Heavenly Father and see the great gift that He has given to you in His Son. Then go boldly before His throne with your request and make them known to Him. You see, to the extent that you're able to see your helplessness and that you're willing to entrust your problems to Him, but then also to rely on His great power through prayer, to that extent you will begin to experience the greatness you can in this life. And that you'll begin being changed into the person that he wants you to be. Even through difficulty, no less. So with that said, let's go to the Lord. Let's go to him in the power of the Savior. And ask that he would do that, shall we? Let's pray.